Welcome everyone to Bar Talk. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez. We're here for another exciting episode of Bar Talk, and we have a special guest with us here today. Gita Kapoor is the author of a new book that's going to be released soon, uh, which is called To Drink from the Well, The Struggle for Racial Equality at the Nation's Oldest Public University. I've had the privilege to read an advanced copy of the book. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think it is an intriguing and engaging read, and I'm really interested to learn more about the process of doing the research and drafting the book. And Gita has been kind enough uh, to spend some time with us here today for the podcast. Gita, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I'm honored to do this. Very honored. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for, for your work on this important topic. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. I know you are a lawyer, like most of our listeners, but give us, give us a little more about, uh, about your, your history. Um, so I started practicing law in 2003. I knew after clerking at two big law firms that that was not what I wanted to do. I really wanted to help poor people. So I started um, with a fellowship at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. From there, I went to the Public Defender's Office in Orange County. Um, I only stayed there for two years. I remember one of my professors in law school telling me that, you know, uh, if you do decide to do this work, check in with me at the second year. You're not going to be able to stay much longer than that. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but literally at the second year, after having um, 30 cases, sometimes 40 cases a day, I was just exhausted. But I still was very committed to doing the work. Um, I, I, I cared deeply for my clients. So I went into private practice and got on the court appointed list in Durham and was able to manage my caseload much better. And then I got on the um, appellate defender's list. I also do appellate work. Um, I've made my way into movement work. Um, I, I'll say not by my choice, but one of my mentors, Al McShirley, kind of threw me in because he didn't want to do um, the first Moral Monday. And from there, I just ended up being the lead lawyer for the Moral Monday protests. Um, and that's really civil rights work. So when I describe myself, I would say I'm a civil rights attorney. Gotcha. Well, as, as one of those uh, big firm lawyers that, that tries to do some pro bono work, I, I certainly appreciate the work you're doing. That, that uh, you know, the, the criminal defense work and particularly the death penalty work, I, I understand the burnout and the stress. That's, that's something that I don't think I could do for two months, yet alone two years. So, so thanks for doing that, that important work. I think, you know, everyone in the bar recognizes that, that that needs to be done and we need dedicated folks trying to protect folks. So I appreciate that. Thank Tell you. me a little bit about how this book came to be. There's a, there's obviously a lot of research and writing, and we'll talk about some of the stuff that contains, but where, where did this idea come from? How long ago was it? Just take our listeners a little bit through the, through the process of, of coming up with a piece like this. Sure. I'm glad to do that. In 2010, I was preparing to teach as an adjunct professor at um, UNC in the undergraduate African-American studies department. I was in the Wilson Library, and I saw a poster that 
a poster about an um, exhibit that they had at the Wilson Library. It was called We Shall Not Be Moved. It was an exhibit on African-Americans in North Carolina. So um, I, I decided to go to the exhibit. And while at the exhibit, they had a, an extensive ex exhibit on education. I saw two black and white photographs. One was of um, the first two African-American students at the law school and then at the law school of, of UNC. And mm -hmm. then the other one was of three young men seated at the old well, and they were the first three undergraduates at UNC. Both of the captions under the pictures indicated that there had been litigation to get these students into Carolina. Um, in fact, litigation that went all the way up to the US Supreme Court. So I, I was, I was, I was stunned. I was stunned and I felt betrayed because I had been in Carolina for seven years, never learned about these two men or the, the other three. I didn't know anything about them. Um, so from there, I went looking for, for their stories. I went looking for the cases first because, you know, mm -hmm. obviously I'm a lawyer. So I, I was fascinated by the fact that these cases went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. I found the cases, I read them, and, and then I just felt like I needed to go and find out who these men were um, besides plaintiffs. You know, where, where did they come from? What led them to do this? Um, and in, in, in finding their stories, I found a much larger story. Um, it seemed that the more research I did, the more I had to do. So, you know, <laughs> it seemed like a never ending, a, kind of a never ending thing. Um, and then I just, I felt called to write a book about, about them. I thought I was writing a book about those two legal cases, but it's clear that <laughs> that was not the um, intention. Right. It's, it's, a lot, it's a lot more, yeah, it's a lot more than that now. I was impressed just by the sheer amount of research that you've done. I mean, by my tally, there are 893 footnotes, at least in the draft, you know, that I saw. Um, that That's a pretty remarkable uh, number for, for even serious research texts. And I'm just curious about kind of the decision to go that heavily annotated, scholastic, you know, cite everything approach, and also just how much was involved. I know, I guess you said you got inspired back in 2010. Here we are 11 years later. Um, kind of take us through that, that process, because it's obviously, it's one thing to write a book. It's another to really, you know, do something that's as thoroughly researched and annotated as you've ended up coming up with here. Well, I knew this book was going to be controversial, and I knew I was going to be called upon to defend my work. So that's why I documented everything that I wrote in the book. Um, there, are, there are some parts of the book where it's clear it's my voice, um, it's my opinion, I'm narrating um, a particular situation, but where there are facts, I have documented those facts so that, um, you know, um, in the event that I have to defend myself also, I thought that it was my hope that students would go through the research themselves, I, you know, I, I could imagine 
someone teaching a law school class on my book um, and requiring them to go and find the transcript from the law school trial. So that's really, um, I think those would be the two reasons why I documented it so heavily. Um, and then I think you asked me about the research process. Yeah, that, yeah I'm just interested in how, you know, because obviously you've got a day job you know, as a practice yes. lawyer, too. I'm, I'm interested. We may have listeners that have always thought, oh, it'd be easy. You know, I could I could whip out a, you know, I mean, maybe they're talking about a, a Grisham novel rather than this kind of research piece. But I, for folks that are thinking about this, it'd be helpful to understand how long it took and what what that process involved, how you managed to to do it. It took several years to compile the research. I, I started out at the Wilson Library. Um, I started digging through archives. Um, I, I looked through Frank Porter Graham's archives, for example. So I had, I had some, what of a framework of the people who were involved in um, the desegregation of the university. And I would go through their papers. Then I went through the university's official papers um, I also wanted to go through uh, the, the governor's papers and the attorney general's papers because at that time, um, it's probably still the case today, the university was very um, closely tied and controlled by Raleigh and the politicians in Raleigh. So I, in addition to going to the Wilson Library, I spent a lot of time there. Um, I went to the state archives in Raleigh um, and looked through the governor's papers and the attorney general's papers. And then I went to a number of other archives, other archives. Um, some places I went to, other places I called and asked for particular materials. So, you know, the research process was um, very, very arduous. It took me a long time to conduct all this research. And I would, I requested photocopies of everything and I would, you know, come, come back after um, receiving the photocopies and throw them in a corner of my office because I was hoping that I just, you know, would never have to write this book, but the joke was on me clearly. So, you know, but the way that I managed it is um, I would, I would take some time off here and there, you know, maybe, maybe a week, maybe, maybe two weeks here and there. Um, it, it was very difficult to do because I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have um, a stipend. I didn't have any, I didn't have a grant to write this book. I just had a calling to write it and um, the calling wouldn't go away. So, um, but it, it's, it was very difficult to do to yeah. conduct the research and um, practice. And then I was also teaching as an adjunct at, at Campbell and being the lead lawyer for Moral Monday. So it was a lot to juggle. Wow. Well, congratulations on finally getting it done. <laughs> That's Thank gotta you. be a good, a good feeling of accomplishment. I'd love to give our listeners some sense of the book. And, and we're talking about a, you know, it's a pretty long book. Um, so we're not going to be able to talk about the whole thing in this podcast. I encourage folks, you know, that want to do it. It's, it's 12 chapters long, but let's, let's, to give a flavor of it, I, I was very interested in right at the beginning in chapter one, we meet Wilson Swain. Tell our listeners about that story. And I'm interested in how you learned 
uh, Wilson Swain's story? So the more research I did, the more I had this question, you know, um, when, when did this all begin? Um, it was a very naive question on my behalf. I had certainly taken um, African-American history courses at UNC. I knew slavery had occurred. I knew Jim Crow had occurred. Um, it just, I just wondered when, when did this all start? And one day I um, was preparing to go dig through the archives again. I got off the elevator um, at the Wilson Library and I walked through the glass doors at the front and they had a photograph of an African-American man. It was a very grainy photograph. Um, it was perched on a, on a stand and I could not take my eyes off of him. Um, I could not take my eyes off of him in, you know, it's, it was one of those moments when the world kind of stopped around me. And then as I read about who he was in the display, I learned that he was a slave of President, um, President Swain, who was, I believe, the, the third president of the university. And I, you know, at that point, I, I just conclusively knew he was the beginning. So I'm not sure how I found out, but I, maybe one of the, maybe one of the um, librarians told me that his, his grave was close by. So I went to his grave and um, I was just struck by the inscription on his grave. Um, he's probably the only enslaved person who has such an inscription engraved on, sand, on a sandstone um, pillar. The, the thing that caught me was um, the last line was let him, let him rest here until he's ready for work again. Um, I, I couldn't let that go either. I couldn't let his image go and I couldn't let that go. And I, I, I sat, I remember sitting on the ground there, um, you know, in tears thinking about what deferred dreams he had for his children. Um, he had, he had a large family. Um, what dreams his wife had, I mean, what dreams he and his wife had together. And so I, um, I made a promise to him before I left that he would be the beginning. So that's how I, that's how I found uh, Wilson Swain Caldwell. And, you know, they, part of the, part of the issue with the archives is that they're devoid of any information on enslaved people. You can't go to the archives to find Wilson Caldwell's papers or anything that he's authored, for example. So to find that kind of narrative, I had to employ a method that Toni Morrison used in her book, Beloved. Um, and that's what I've done. So I, I tried to put myself in his position. Um, and I tried to you know, take the reader into his world to understand um, what it was like to be an enslaved person at, at the university. Great. Well, and I think, I think you do it in a, in a powerful way. And obviously we don't, because we don't have the records, it's always hard to know exactly, but I think, I think you paint a, uh, you know, an interesting picture, um, regardless of how people end up interpreting it. I, I, I find it 
moving. Um, Thank you. You you move into the second chapter uh, talking about the Black Wall Street of America. This is something I had virtually no knowledge of, and that may be true for some of our readers too. Can you share a little bit about what you you discovered and what you write about uh, there? So the, the five men in the two photographs that I just described were all from um, Durham. The, the first lawsuit to desegregate North Carolina, UNC, um, the University of North Carolina was in 1933. The plaintiff in that case came from Durham. So there seemed to be a connection between the university and between this um, independent black community in Durham. So I thought that I had to explain that to the reader as well. I had to give that story rather to the reader. The reader needed to know um, how this independent community came to be. And in fact, it was the black Wall Street of America. So, you know, initially the reader may think, well, okay, we just finished in Chapel Hill. Why are we going to Durham? But there's a, there was a very strong connection between Durham and North Carolina. Indeed, every, every case to desegregate, every battle to desegregate the university came from this independent Black community. Gotcha. And, and many people have written about, black, about the Black Durham, about the Black Wall Street. Um, but I, I don't think anybody has made the connection between it and the University of North Carolina. Great. Um, I know, uh, and again, we, we don't have time to talk about all the different chapters, but as a lawyer, you do spend a lot of time looking at a number of interesting court decisions and court cases. And as you explained, that's what kind of motivated you back in 2010 was uh, seeing those uh, desegregation cases. I'm interested in, you know, if you had to pick one or two of the decisions you talk about that was the most impactful or surprising to you, what you know, what, which really, which really struck you? And because you, you, you go through a whole history of, of cases, but I'm just, if you were focusing on, on a couple, what would they be? Uh, well, UNC was a part, uh, UNC was, was, was ground for Brown. Um, the, actually the first desegregation case in the nation was filed at the University of North Carolina in 1933. So Brown really began at UNC. And I think what most people don't know is that Brown ended at UNC as well. The case where Brown ended, that's the one where I was very stunned by what I, um, what I read. In particular, well, let me just give, give your audience some idea. So Brown versus Board of Education came out, the second opinion came out in 1955 and the court said, you know, you need to desegregate with all deliberate speed. Well, uh, UNC took the position that Brown only applied to colleges, uh, well, Brown only applied to um, public schools. It did not apply to universities and colleges. Right, just K-12, right. They, their, their argument was it was a K-12 decision for, for public, you know, public schools open to everybody. Right. Um, and so they took the position that the University of North Carolina was exempt and they were going to deny admission to the young, the three young African-American men who had applied there. But what, what really struck me was they thought that that case 
all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the plaintiffs were denied um, admission to UNC post-Brown. The plaintiffs filed a lawsuit. The uh, lawsuit was heard in federal court by a three-judge panel because the, the trustees were deemed to be state actors by the judge by the judges. So that's why it was in federal court. And so the federal court ruled that they had to be admitted to the university if they were qualified because Brown did not apply just to schools that were the lower, lower public schools and the secondary schools. In fact, they said that Brown applied with greater force to colleges and universities. Well, the, the trustees of UNC took the position that they were going to appeal that ruling. First, they were going to try to get a stay of the ruling to keep the three um, young black men out. And then they were going to appeal it all the way to the US Supreme Court. Their brief, um, the, the state's brief to the Supreme Court is what really struck me. They didn't have much case law. They didn't have any case law, in fact, which I, I wouldn't dare ever submit a brief without any case law. That struck me first. But then when I read it, I thought, I, I have never read anything like this. They, 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 tell, they basically told the Supreme Court that they erred when they decided Brown. And this case is going to give them an opportunity to decide Brown the correct way because Brown does not apply to colleges and universities. And they were insistent upon that. Well, I found some communications between the attorney general, um, the attorney general and the governor where the attorney general says, we don't, we don't have a chance at winning um, knowing the Supreme Court the way that it is, but we need to fight anyway. So it's really their brief that, that struck me and stays with me to this day. Um, and so they petitioned for, um, for review and the Supreme Court denied review. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And it's, you know, and this isn't as long ago as sometimes we like to think, right? You look at the, the timing, it's hard to believe that people are taking this position, you know, less than 60 years ago or whatever. You know, it's just not that or less now. I get the date, no. but it's, it is pretty remarkable. Um, in addition, and you 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 find a number of you know very disturbing historical incidents of obvious racism and and discrimination um, you know throughout the the history of of the system. You also do talk about some inspirational leaders that really you know uh, moved the ball forward and tackled some of those challenges of of the people you wrote about, anyone in particular stand out or that you want to share with our, their story with our, with our listeners? There are two. I can't decide between the two of them. You can do two. Okay. <laughs> that works. Well, I would start with President Frank Porter Graham. He was the, um, the first president of the Consolidated University, which at that time was UNC Chapel Hill well, it was the University of North Carolina State College in Raleigh and then the Women's College in Greensboro. He was a small man, um, five foot four, but in so many ways he was a giant. And I say that because he, at the time that he uh, came into the position as the president, it was, it was during the Great Depression. 
And he came out um, fiercely defending academic freedom. Um, in fact, I want to read a quote from my book. It's a, from his inauguration speech. He says, along with culture and democracy must go freedom. Without freedom, they, there can be neither true culture nor real democracy. And without freedom, there can be no university. So I really respected the fact that he, he was a fierce defender of academic freedom. A lot of people don't know that he's the one who, um, he's the one who took the University of North Carolina to national prominence during Jim Crow. He was appointed to a number of committees by um, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and then subsequently by President Harry Truman. Um, but the thing that, you know, I, the thing that will always remain with me about President Graham, there are many good things about him. He would loan money to the students. He would let them live in the president's home. In fact, the trustees got so angry at him, they passed a ruling saying the president could not give students money. The, the thing that stays with me is that he refused to argue. I mean, as a lawyer, that's just difficult to conceptualize. Mm -hmm. But it, it really came um, to, it really came to the forefront. It really was made evident to me um, in the 1950, uh, Senate race in North Carolina. So in 1949, the North Carolina Senator Melvin Broughton died and Governor Carr Scott appointed Dr. Frank Porter Graham to finish out the term. People were devastated that he was leaving the university. Um, he had never thought he would ever leave. So he took the Senate seat. And then in the 1950 election, um, a prominent lawyer, Willis Smith, uh, ran against Graham. Uh, Willis Smith is, was the, probably the founder, or he certainly was one of the partners of today's law firm, Smith Anderson, which is in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. So he, they had a primary um, and then they had to have a second primary. Well, the Smith, I'm sorry, the Willis, the Willis Smith, Frank Porter Graham, 1950 Senate race was one of the most vicious and openly racist campaigns in the state's history and even in the nation's history. Willis Smith came out attacking Graham. First, he said that Graham was a communist. When that didn't seem to go very far with people, he turned and played the race card because Frank Porter Graham believed that desegregation should happen, but he was a moderate. He naively thought that people would come around by if they were educated and if they, through education and religion, they would come around is what he believed very naively. So they used the race card against him. And his campaign staff came out, came to him and said, you need to go out and you need to attack Willis Smith. You need to be on the offense about this. Well, he told them in definitive terms, I'm not saying anything against any human being. He refused to argue. He lost the primary. He got on the elevator at the Sir Walter Raleigh Hotel, which is where his campaign headquarters were and where Willis Smith's campaign headquarters were and went downstairs, congratulated Smith, um, and then never again talked about the Senate race. 
to anybody. Never said anything negative about Willis Smith. Willis yeah. Smith died a year later while in office. And at his funeral, on the back row, sitting there quietly, was Dr. Frank Porter Graham. Hmm. The other, the other leader who is 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 just as remarkable as President Graham is Dr. James Shepard. I was stunned that, you know, in 1910, he found this plot of land on Fayetteville Street in Durham. It was a trash heap. He decided he had a vision of having a college, a freestanding college there for, for um, African-American students. He built a college and he refused to turn away any poor student. So from 1912 until 1931, so roughly two decades, he faced serious financial issues. And when I say serious, I mean to the point where creditors were going to auction his home mm -hmm. and auction all his personal belongings. But he remained steadfast. He did not give up. He remained steadfast. He found benefactors to get the school out of financial trouble. Um, he would go to the legislature to, you know, lobby for funds for the school. He was a master diplomat of Jim Crow. And in fact, he and Dr. Uh, Frank Porter Graham would correspond often. Um, it, it always brought me such joy to see a letter from one to the other or the other to, you know, one to the other. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was just struck by Dr. Shepard's determination to fight within the constraints of Jim Crow. Now he was against desegregation because he believed that desegregation would lead to less funding for his school and his school would eventually be shut down. And he also believed, um, he, he would say this all the time that Negro students do their best work at Negro schools. So I, um, I, I was just struck by his, his, his determination in the face of, you know, um, in the face of odds that were against him and remained against him, he just continued to fight for those students. That's great. That's great. Well, I love the way you've taken these historical figures and really brought them to life and, you know, help share their stories. I think it's terrific. If our <laughs> listeners want to hear more, I encourage them to to read the book, do, do you have a release date? When when will it be available? And how can our listeners order a copy if they want one? So my the new release date is September 21st, but you can pre-order the book on um, Amazon or at bookshop.org. I'm, I'm really persuading people to go to bookshop because our independent bookshops are being threatened by COVID. So to the extent that people can support our um, independent bookshops by going to bookstore. That would be great. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gita, for spending some time with us today. Um, I appreciate it. Again, I think it's a, it's a very well-written, well-documented, well-researched book. Um, I do want to remind listeners that neither Gita's views nor mine are the views of the State Bar. Um, uh, this is a, just a, a story covering uh, a, a, about a lawyer who wrote about a lot of legal cases um, in a very interesting read. So I encourage folks to, to listen to it, enjoy it, and stay tuned for our next episode of Bar Talk. You can also subscribe to Bar 
Talk at the State Bar website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time at Bar Talk.